When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat. They were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Sometimes people ask me what I like to do for fun. I say, I'm a pastor. We don't have fun. (laughs) Have you ever hung out with a pastor before? I don't say that. I usually don't say that. But whenever I'm asked a question, and it's not like I get that question all the time, I say the obvious conventional things like, you know, hanging out with family, hanging out with friends. You know, if your family or friends are around, you got to say that stuff. You don't want to offend them. And so I, oh, I like hanging out with my family. I like hanging out with my friends. Then I say some of the typical stuff like reading and writing. Most pastors are really into consuming content and pouring out content and so forth. And some of those things are probably obvious to you. Maybe you knew that already. Maybe you didn't. But then I give an unconventional answer that doesn't really apply to everyone. And I always say, you know, one of my favorite things to do is go swimming. I just love being in the pool. Just going to the pool, going down the slides, jumping off the diving board, you know, being in line with all the five-year-olds to go down the slide. I'm like the, the tallest one, and there's all these little kids behind me, and just going tanning, and then jumping back in, and buying a pretzel. You know, it's just, I just love being outdoors in the, in the pool during the summertime. It's my favorite time of the year. And inevitably, every year, there's always a kid or two who gets close to the water, and what they try to do is walk on the water. They try to run across really quickly. And, you know, I find it to be amusing, so I typically kind of look in. And they usually get like half a step on, but every time, inevitably, they always fall in. And whenever they do that, there's friends or family around. They're kind of taping it, and they're they're laughing. and They're trying to walk on water just goofing around to see or maybe try to impress people if they can get a step or two. Uh, Here in our story, when Jesus walks on water, this famous Bible story, he doesn't do it to draw a crowd or be impressive or be amazing. He does it as a visible demonstration of his divinity, that he's God, that he's the one who has sovereignty and power over creation. And in the story, as it was mentioned earlier, the disciples get frightened. They are scared. We, too, are prone to get frightened in life when our circumstances seem against us. But what this passage teaches is that the presence of Jesus casts out fear. The presence of Jesus casts out fear. If you can remember in the previous section of Scripture, Jesus feeds the 5,000. It says 5,000 in your Bible. It could have been 15, 20,000. It's kind of hard to look out at a lot of people and guess how many people there are. So either way, he feeds a lot of people, and the disciples got to see that. And so they're on this mountaintop spiritual experience, but now they're in the water, they're in a boat, and they're frightened. Often in life, after a mountaintop spiritual experience, you can find yourself in the valley. And after feeding the 5,000, Jesus gets away and goes to a mountain, and John's gospel it doesn't tell us what he's doing. But this story of Jesus walking on water is also in Matthew's gospel and also in Mark's gospel. And there we're told that Jesus was praying. So Jesus was praying by a mountain because the people saw him doing miracles. Like, oh my goodness, you're so amazing. We want to turn you into this political Messiah kind of figure. Jesus didn't want that. That wasn't God's plan for his life. So he gets away to spend time with the Father to pray. 
if Jesus, the Son of God, thought it was important for him to be alone with God to pray, how much more it is for you and I, feeble and finite saints. So Jesus is praying by a mountain. Disciples go down, they get into a boat, and they go across the sea. It says in the passage that it was now dark, and it had, Jesus had not yet come to them. The two words that stick out to me there are dark and yet. And many of the commentators point out that the word dark there is actually symbolic. Yes, it's literally dark outside. Matthew's Gospel says it's the fourth watch of the night, which is like 3 a.m. So it's pitch black outside. Yes, it's literally dark, but if you read the Bible closely in certain areas, there's symbolism in which the author is trying to make a spiritual point. So it's dark, yes, but the disciples go down into the boat without Jesus. And what John is trying to say is that life without Jesus is dark. When you're on your own, when you're doing your own thing, when you're following your own plan, that's the, the way of darkness. Anyone who's not a Christian is living in darkness. They may or may not even realize it. And so first what we see is some symbolism. We also see that a bit with the word yet. It says that Jesus had not yet come to them. So the point there is that Jesus was going to come to them. He knew all along that he was going to save his disciples, rescue them. But Jesus is not in the business of just saving people or granting salvation to people, right? Like sometimes I was on a church website recently, one of the most popular churches in America, third or fourth fastest growing church. They do a lot of things really well. One of their, missions, their mission statement was something like, we, insp we inspire people to follow Jesus, that's a great start, but it's not good enough because the goal is not just to follow Jesus, but to become like him and to grow spiritually. And Jesus knows that part of growing spiritually means that you have to be sent into storms sometimes, difficult things, hardships. One of the worst things that could happen to you is that you never suffer or life always goes the way you want it to go. But the storms and the difficulties and the trials and the fear is not there because God is cruel and he wants to hurt you in some way because if you belong to him. Instead, in all of those moments in life, what God is doing is testing you, growing your faith, teaching you to become more like Jesus, the one who died on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead. Christ had a difficult life full of suffering. So did the Apostle Paul. So did anyone and everyone who follows him. So if you're feeling like there's a lot of hardships right now in your life, you, you actually might be in a great spot. It's the perfect spot for God to move in your life and help you to become more like Christ. It's in the difficult seasons of life where we tend to cry out to God and read our Bible more and seek him more. It's, it's in the seasons of success and prosperity where we want to forget God and say, look what I did on my own. But it's in the hard times, kind of like a diamond in the fire, that we grow and we come out shinier on the other side. Some of you can relate to King David in the Old Testament where he writes the 69th Psalm. He says this, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. Like, I can't take any more of this. This is too much. I feel like I can drown any second. He's crying out to God, save me, O God. Time, continue therein, 
And in his own good time, listen to this, and in his own good time, therein. And in his own good time, listen to this, and in his own good time, and in his own good time, listen to this, and in his own good time, and in his own good time, listen to this, and in his own good time, the Lord, his own good time, listen to this, and in his own good time, the Lord, good time, listen to this, and in his own good time, the Lord will time listen to this, and in his own good time, the Lord will to this, and in his own good time, the Lord will in his own good time, the Lord will deliver your own good time, the Lord will deliver you. Do you believe that? Verse 18, the sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. So the disciples are on a boat, it's dark, and now a storm hits. Those of you with good literary taste, you're familiar with Charlie Brown and the dog Snoopy. Whenever he wrote a novel, he would always say, it was a dark and stormy night. This is exactly what's going on, only this is not a novel, this is a real historical account that actually happened. And they're now in the boat, and we're told that they're about three or four miles into the sea. And in Mark's gospel, it says that they're in the middle of the sea. Right? So it's not like they got in a boat, they got in the water, it started drizzling. They go, oh, thank you, Lord, for the drizzle. I go back on the shore. Thanks for the reminder. It's like, no, 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 I'm going to send you out into the sea. You're going to go three or four miles before the storm hits. And the Sea of Galilee back then was known for sudden, destructive difficult, terrifying storms in which many people lost their lives. They, they were on a flimsy boat, right, like a boat that you and I could have put together. And if I'm helping out, the boat is going to be really flimsy because I can't build anything, right? So they're on a flimsy boat. A powerful electronic boat would have got crushed through some of these seas. How much more a flimsy boat? And some of these men on the boat are fishermen, experienced fishermen, and yet, like this, is like, this is their niche. This is where they live. This is where they do their life, out by the sea. And it says they were frightened. I'm afraid that we can go too fast on this, so I'm going to actually ask you to do something. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes really quickly. If you can just join me in closing your eyes. I want you to feel the tension here. Just picture this. It's 3 a.m., you're exhausted. It's pitch black outside and you can't see anything. You've been on a boat rowing for hours and you're exhausted. You're with 11 of your friends on a boat. You get to the middle of the sea and suddenly a major storm hits. The wind hits the boat so hard that things are flying off. Water is getting into the boat. Waves are hitting the boat so hard that it's shaking. You know deep down that many have lost their lives this way. You know you're on a flimsy boat. 
Your 11 friends are screaming for their life. You're afraid that you might need to do the same. Open your eyes. It's a little different, huh, as opposed to just kind of reading the story really quickly. You would think that things would get better, but they actually get worse. So they're in a really bad situation, and then it gets worse. That's how things are often in life, right? You're like, oh, I'm in a really bad situation. Maybe the Lord will rescue me soon. No, I'm, it's going to get worse before it gets better, as the saying goes. So the disciples are out on the boat, and then they see Jesus. Usually when people see Jesus, things get better. Here they got worse. This is one of the few times in Scripture where someone sees Jesus and things get worse. They're seeing someone walking on the water, this Jewish, Palestinian, 30-something-year-old, single man walking on water. What in the world? That suspends the law of gravity. It would have been shocking to see Christ walking on the water. There's a storm going on. It's not like it's a calm little kiddie pool. No, there's a big storm, and he's walking. And it's none other than Jesus. And Jesus walking on water is to show his divinity, that he's God, that he's not just some other good teacher, he's not some other prophet, that unlike anyone else, he can actually do miraculous, powerful things. This is a visible demonstration to his divinity. But what Christ is also doing is showing his power and his sovereignty, which means control, over creation. So when I say creation, I'm saying created stuff, like the wind, seas, sky, stars, moon, God, Christ, is in control of all of that. You can remember from the first sermon in our Gospel of John, third verse. You don't even have to get very far in. It's the third verse. It says, all things were made through him, that is Christ, and without him was anything made that was not made. So sometimes people say, oh, Jesus, he's nowhere in the Old Testament, but he shows up on the New Testament. No, Jesus has no beginning, he has no ending, he's God, and in Genesis 1, we see in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and the light and so on and so forth. It was Christ who all of that stuff was made through. So Christ is showing here that he is sovereign over creation. And to see the water in scripture, often in the book of Revelation, characterizes evil. It pictures chaos. It pictures disorder. So what Christ is showing also is that he is in control in the midst of chaos, evil, and disorder. But even though perhaps the disciples would have known this intellectually, but it hadn't hit their heart, they still were frightened. That word frightened there could be translated as struck with fear. They were struck with fear. If you would define fear, one definition says, a distressing emotion aroused by impending danger, evil, pain, etc., whether the threat is real or imagined. You're really scared. You think something bad is going to happen. Okay, that's a technical definition. Thank you, dictionary.com or whatever website I got that from. You're really scared and you think something bad is going to happen. That's when you feel fearful. And I got my flag tie on. We got banners up and so forth. We live in America. So I was kind of thinking about with Flag Day in America, what are some of the common fears that Americans face? 
right? And so I don't want to put all of us in a box because some of us struggle with these fears. Some of us don't. We're not all the same person. But I read one survey, one credible survey, that listed 10 things that Americans are afraid of. They get fearful about. I'm not going to read them all. I don't want to bore some of you. I'm going to read a few of them. Let me know as I, see the, if I, as I say these if you can resonate with some of them. Here's some of the fears that Americans struggle with according to the survey. Uh, corruption of government officials. Not having enough money for the future. Almost everyone in their 20s feels that tension. People I love becoming seriously ill. People I love dying. High medical bills. For our church, we could also add our children, or our children's children, or our children's children's children, for some of us, not becoming a Christian, not following Jesus. You put all that 18 years of praying and sending them to the best schools and telling them about Jesus and raising them as best you know in the discipline and instruction of the Lord only to get to 19 or 20 and say, I'm, I don't want nothing to do with the church, Dad. It's crushing. It's extremely painful. And if you're in that situation, you can just be honest about that fear. That's got to be really hard. One of my biggest fears is... I get saying that. Right now in our country, there's a lot of fear. In fact, I would argue this is one of the most fearful times I've ever seen. I know some of you are older than me, like, oh, yeah, I've seen it worse than that. I know, I know, I'm just saying for my age, for how old I am, I just haven't seen it this bad before. You know, we're living through a pandemic. It's a virus, highly transmittable. Obviously, if you're the kind of person that's always on social media and always checking the news, they're just going to, they're looking for people to devour, not saying that they're not credible sources out there. There certainly is. Some of us need a fast from social media and the internet for a while, right, and abide in Christ and get our heads right again. We have a real virus, a real threat, a second wave of it. Things are starting to go back to somewhat normal. We're meeting in a building. Denise and I went out to a restaurant last weekend. We ate. Nobody had their mask on. Then I realized it's because they were all eating. Oh, I remember now. I was like, nobody here cares at all. Good grief. Why are we here? And they're like, oh, they got the mask to the side. Okay. The, the servers had their, their, their mask on. Okay, good. Thank you to the restaurant. The gym. My gym is opening tomorrow. I put on some weight from this staying at home stuff. I need a loo. I need, I'm ready to go back to the gym. The pools are opening up. There's a, but people, there's some people who are like, oh, no, it's going to be worse Late summer or fall, you know those people. They could be right, they could be wrong, we don't know, but it's a fear. And not to mention, another big one is the racial injustices in our country. The tragic, absolute tragic death of George Floyd. And now a lot of our minority brothers and sisters in Christ are feeling even more fearful. This passage addresses what to do with our fears and how they go away in verse 20. When none other than the Lord Jesus enters the scene and begins to speak, he says this. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. It is I, do not be afraid. It is I, do not be afraid. 
is not an angel. This is not a spirit on Jesus' behalf, like some liberal theologians would say. That's completely wrong. This is not some representative on Christ's behalf. Jesus doesn't send his personal assistant. Oh, you go do that dirty work. Oh, those annoying 12 people, good grief, they've just been driving me crazy. No, 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 this is Jesus himself saying, do not be afraid. I woke up Wednesday morning with some chest pain and it's a hard week. A million things going on, wrong. One night I just felt like I couldn't sleep. I just was saying this to myself over and over again. Just reminding myself of the promise in Scripture. It is I. Do not be afraid. In fact, the expression, do not be afraid, is mentioned 365 times in the Bible. Literally, go look it up. One for every day of the year. Jesus says, it is I. If you look at the original language there, that can be translated, I am. So it can be translated, I, it is I, or I am. And John's readers would pick up on this, but let me just say it to you. You could remember Moses in Exodus chapter 3, where there's a burning bush, right? Again, not some sort of magical trick to, oh, I want to get attention, I'm God. He, God is allowing the burning bush to burn, to display his self-sufficiency and his self-dependence and his his, he doesn't need anyone for anything, right? But in that story, in Exodus chapter 3, working from memory here, Moses goes to God and said, you know, God says to Moses, hey, go, go tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And then Moses, you know, he's always asking six or seven clarifying questions and wants to be sure that he's sure that he's sure that he's sure. And then he asks a question, he says, okay, if I go and tell Moses and the Israelites to let the people go, who should I say sent me? And I got some of this in my notes here, so I'll look down, and God says to him, tell them I am who I am is sending you. Do you see the connection there? I am, original Greek in the Gospel of John, and then I am in Exodus. So what God is telling Moses is saying, tell them God is sending you. Because I am who I am is another expression for saying God. It's the Yahweh, the covenant name for God. So when Jesus says, it is I, or it can be translated, I am, what he's saying is, do not be afraid, God is here. It's another pointer to his divinity. And I love, I just, people wonder why we love Jesus so much. I just... If you look at this passage, notice Jesus doesn't, he doesn't rebuke the disciples for their fear. He doesn't say, good grief, man. How many miracles do I got to do to show you guys that I'm God? Don't you remember me feeding the 5,000? Like, that literally just happened. Healing the man by the pool at Bethesda who was an invalid for 38 years. Healing the official son, my perfect character that you've seen on display over and over again. Haven't I been faithful to you and you're still afraid? What's going on? Some of you in your 60s or 70s or 80s, you might feel ashamed that you struggle with fears. And you say, oh man, I've been a Christian 50 years, I still struggle with the same thing. 
And let me just tell you, it's okay. It's okay. Jesus doesn't look at you this morning and says, how many times do I have to provide for you to show you that I'm going to provide for you? He says, it is I. Do not be afraid. No matter how old you are. Notice again that Jesus doesn't give his disciples a list of things to do. He doesn't say, it is I. Now go read the Old Testament. It is I. Now go to the temple. It is I. Go do whatever. Now, reading your Bible, extremely important. Going to church on Sunday, extremely important. Praying, extremely important. I'm not disregarding the spiritual disciplines. Those are basic elementary things to help you grow in the faith. But what this passage teaches is not so much, here's all the things you have to do to get your fears removed, but simply in the presence of Jesus, fears cast it out. I shared this before, but when Caleb was a baby, just like any other baby, he would cry, and he would get up in the middle of the night. He wasn't, you know, all waking up every hour of the day, but he also wasn't sleeping through the night. So he's kind of in the medium level of difficulty. And so he would get up and he would cry and 10 a.m., 10 p.m., and then 1 and then 4 or something like that. And um, we'd go, I'd go get him. And I would just pick him up and I would just say, hey, buddy, it's okay, daddy's here. Daddy's here, bud. It's going to be all right. Then he would stop crying and put him back down to sleep. Just the presence of knowing that his dad is with him, helped him. I think it's the same in our spiritual lives. When we feel afraid, scared, we might even feel like crying out. Just remembering that the presence of Jesus cast out fear. Next month we celebrate the 4th of July, Independence Day. As I heard one pastor say, Christianity is not about independence, but dependence, dependence on God. Some of us right now, we might be struggling with fears, and uh, you know, for a lot of us, we just try to handle it on our own, Father, Son, and Holy Intellect. You know, I'm going to use my own brain, my own grit. Some of you from a different generation say, oh, you, you don't know how hard we had it growing up in my day. We just worked really hard and totally true, 100% believe you. But you could also transfer that to your own spiritual life and not learn to really be dependent on God. So it's not, it's not a formulaic thing, right? It's not like if you, if you walked in this morning and you were feeling really afraid of several things, it's not like the moment you read your Bible and pray, it'll go away. I'm not exactly sure specifically what God is doing in your life or what that looks like, but I know that dependence on God, increased dependence on God, helps us as we seek to have our fears vanished. Verse 21, it says, Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. The first part makes me laugh there. Then they were glad to take him into the boat. It's like, well, duh. They're frightened. 
they realize it's Jesus, they're not going to be like, oh, great, are you, just, you just stay out in this sea. Right? So they invite Jesus in. It says that they were glad to take him in the boat. They were delighted to take him into the boat. That word can be translated. They were so thrilled that Jesus was there. And an often overlooked part of this story is the verse, verse 21, where it says, and immediately the boat was at the land to where they were going. So, one miracle, Jesus walks on water, but another miracle. There's two miracles in the story, not one. Jesus gets into the boat, they're in the middle of the sea, and then immediately they get to the shore. And one commentator said that that is another symbolic reference in the story to where the moment you receive Jesus, you invite him into your life, that the automatic guidance to the shore of heaven, the new heavens and new earth are guaranteed not because of what you do, but by what Christ has already done. Because he's the one who lived the perfect life, died on the cross for your sins, and rose from the dead. And when you believe in him, he removes all your sin, past, present, and future. And not only that, the, his perfect righteousness is given to you. And you can trust that one day, even though your life will be filled with storms after storms after storms, that he will take you home safely. I heard a quote this week from an unknown source. Listen to this. Sometimes the Lord calms the storm. Sometimes he lets the storm rage and calms his child. Following Jesus is no guarantee for an easy life. In fact, if you follow Jesus, your life will probably get harder. There will be many storms along the way. But the more you learn to depend on Jesus, and the more you invite his presence into your life, the more your fears will go away. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we just come before you today in the name of Jesus Christ for who he is and what he's done. We give you great glory and praise, Lord, for the way you're working in our lives. Lord, many of us are afraid. We feel ashamed because of our fear. We don't know who to talk to or where to go to. We don't want to say our fears because we don't want to give the impression that we don't have it all together. We don't want to say our fears because we, want to, we know that we've been walking with you for such a long time and we should be over it by now. But Lord, we're just so thankful that you're gentle with us. You're not throwing your hands up in the air. You're not nodding your head. You're, you're gracious with us, Lord. Just pray, help us, God, in our fears. Oh God, help us to practice your presence. We invite your presence into our lives. May these fears go away. In Christ's name, amen.